I'm going to ask you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Thank you, man. Um, it's easy to lose sight this time of the year of the glory of Jesus because we like to light up a whole bunch of other stuff, right? And this time of the year is lighting up trees and lighting up towns and lighting up houses and, right? I mean, it's people light up their own sweaters and ties. And I mean, look at these two. Just stand up for just a second. Look at these. Look, I mean, if you'd stare too long, you'd never see Jesus. I mean, it's just crazy with those ties, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is, it's really easy this time of the year with all the glitz and the glamour. Uh, that was just a funny moment. I'm just going to say it real quick. I just got had this great moment. All right. You guys have no idea that five of you in sync just all took a swig at the same time. Right? It's just amazing to watch. So I'm just saying, it was just like this. Okay. It's caught out of the corner of my eye. I had to comment. Uh, so today we're talking about addictions. Um, sorry. Uh, as I said, it's really easy for us to lose Jesus in the middle of all of this. And, and then it's also really easy for us to only see Jesus in light of the manger. Okay, we, we come to this place and we only see Jesus in light of the fact that he was a baby born in a manger. And I, wanna, I want you to understand the incarnation of Jesus is an amazing miracle. Possibly the greatest miracle is that God limited himself to human flesh. But today, as we look at Mark chapter 9, what we're going to see is Jesus was not limited. Jesus limited himself. And we're going to see the flesh kind of pull back, that hidden veil of God's glory pulled back. And we're going to see Jesus today for who he is. You're going to get a glimpse in Mark chapter 9 of the revelation Jesus the one that you see that is shining and white and that has that sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, that has the eyes of fire, that is the one that pierces right through you and sees right through you. You're going to get a vision of him in Mark chapter 9 that's supposed to carry you through what's coming, that's supposed to carry Peter and the disciples through what's coming because what's coming is the crucifixion and what's coming is questions, what's coming is doubt, what's coming is suffering, what's coming is hardship. What's coming is the end. And in the end, Jesus is going to return and we're going to see him in that glory. And I find this passage of Scripture to be such a blessing to us as the people of God to know that Jesus has revealed himself in his glory and is recorded in God's word that we might know that we don't just serve a baby in a manger or a man on a cross, but we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's a glorious reminder for us. So just to kind of catch us up where we, where we are, in the past few verses, what's happened is, and this is really about six days before what we're going to really look at today, Jesus has a showdown with his disciples. Okay? And this showdown is a moment when Peter is going to declare that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. He's the one they've been waiting for. And in the next breath, Jesus is going to speak plainly and he's going to tell them something. And Peter and the disciples don't react correctly to it. They don't listen to Jesus. They, they hear what he's saying and they don't want it to be true. In fact, it's almost as if Peter then pulls Jesus aside and says, you know, Jesus, you've got the whole Old Testament all wrong. 
right? I mean, it seems like all of those Messiah passages that tell us who we're waiting for, you seem to look at them differently. And Jesus says, I just want you to know, I think you got it all wrong. And Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like man thinks, not like God thinks. Because if you're going to follow after me, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross. There's going to be suffering involved. There's going to be hardship. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to live in a world that is going to be thinking like man and thinking like the world. And you're going to be thinking like God. And they're going to think you're ridiculous. You're going to stand out. You're going to be ridiculed by the people around you. Your own family and friends are going to leave you. You're going to have people who are going to hate you. This is what's going to happen. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow after me. Because if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his very soul? If you're ashamed of me in this crooked and perverse generation, I'm going to be ashamed of you. The Son of Man, the suffering one, who is going to bear all of your shame, is going to be ashamed of you when we stand before my Father. When the end comes. When the kingdom comes. When that kingdom you're waiting for comes, you're not going to have a part in it. And this is a, this is a moment... When Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet and he's saying, this is what my ministry is about. And really what he's telling them is he's, he's displaying to them that in their thought, what it meant for the Messiah to come is that national Israel, this people that had a geography and a culture and all of this, was God's whole purpose. Which Jesus is saying, no, the purpose is the kingdom and it's to all people's. And he's exploding their whole idea. He's just blowing it up, tossing hand grenades in, and blowing up their whole idea of what the kingdom of God looks like. And they don't know how to handle it. They don't know what to do with that. Crucifixion and resurrection is the kingdom. The kingdom is going to be marked by people who will take up crosses. We'd rather have crowns. And Jesus is going to tell them and they're going to reveal and these men are going to write for us to know by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the crowns are coming. But they come after crucifixion and resurrection. And so as we move into chapter 9, Jesus says some really strange, almost cryptic words to begin chapter 9. I want you to see it with me. Chapter 9 verse 1 says, and he said to them, truly I say to you. So this is the end of this conversation. I want, to, I want you to see the transition, okay? He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now you can read that and you can think there are some people there that won't die until Jesus comes back. Well, seems like Jesus must have been mistaken, right? It's 2,000 years later. Right? He wasn't talking about his second coming. That's going to come later. He wasn't talking about in 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and crushed the temple and crushed the people and it seemed as if everything was falling apart. He wasn't talking about that. He was talking in stages. Jesus was going to reveal the power of the kingdom and he's going to do it in stages. He's going to do it, yes, ultimately in the end when he returns. But here in the next passage, he's going to start revealing the power of the kingdom. And as he looked at his disciples and he looked at the people around him, 
many of them, six days later, were going to be able to look up at a mountain and they're going to be able to see the Shekinah glory of God shining on that mountain. They may not see Jesus face to face, but it's going to be a whole lot like the Israelite people standing at the mountain, Mount Sinai, as the law is being given to Moses, as God's glory descends upon this place. But then they're going to see it in the next stage, the resurrection. As the kingdom, power, and authority of God is put on full display. See, Jesus has to inform his disciples that the the glory associated with his kingdom has nothing to do with the restoration of their nation. Jesus has to reveal his glory to them now so that they can see that his kingdom is associated with victory over sin and death, not victory over the Romans. His kingdom is associated with victory over the real enemy, not the perceived enemy. Isn't it good to know who your enemy is? It's a good good idea. If you're going to fight a, a battle or fight a war, it's good to know who your enemy is. And we are in a war. We're in a battle. It's good to know who our enemy is. It's just that we tend to think of people and things and powers that aren't actually the enemy as the enemy. And we get distracted. So that's why we're taught that we're not in a war against flesh and blood. We're not in a war against governments. We're in a war against powers and principalities, things we can't see. And here's the good news. Jesus is establishing his kingdom as a kingdom of victory over those enemies, particularly sin and death. And he's going to put that on full display. So he takes three of his disciples to give them a glimpse of his Messiah glory as a sign of what's to come when Jesus conquers death and when he returns. He uses the title that the Son of Man is the one who's going to bring all of this. This will become his favorite title for the rest of the book of Mark. And in the Son of Man idea, he's tying together the suffering servant of Isaiah, the one who will bear all of our sins and our transgressions. But he's also tying that together to the Son of Man and Daniel who comes and brings His kingdom and power. Peter and the disciples couldn't handle one who would come in power that the power was actually over sin and death. They wanted the power to be over government and authority. But isn't it good that though Jesus doesn't give them what they want or what they expected, He gives them what they need? Isn't that good news for us? That Jesus doesn't come to give us what we want or expect. But he comes to give us what we need. We don't need power and authority over government. We just don't need it. Governments are going to pass away. We don't need power and authority and position and safety from people. We have a king who made them and breathed them into existence. But our great enemy, we need victory over, and Jesus gives that. So in Mark 8.38... Jesus puts an emphasis on when when we stand before the judgment seat, when we're in the last day, I don't want to be the one who has to be ashamed of you because you've been ashamed of me. So he puts the emphasis on his second coming. But now in nine one, chapter 9, verse 1, he puts the emphasis on today. He wants to see things in stages. Jesus will show a glimpse of the kingdom that will be for some who are there right now. He's going to show them the transfiguration as he's changed. And then he's going to show them the resurrection. 
So really, this is just an extension of Jesus looking at Peter and saying, you need to start thinking like God thinks. Stop thinking like man thinks and start thinking like God thinks. Because the ways of God are this, the Son of Man must suffer. That's what he says in chapter 8. The ways of God are the followers of the Son of Man must follow in suffering. Take up your cross. But the victory, the ways of God are that the victory is coming through the resurrection. The disciples were taught that resurrection was only in the last days. That's what they thought. That's what they had grown up believing. That only in the second coming, only in the end, when the kingdom is established, will there be a resurrection. But Jesus is going to display that the power of His kingdom has come through conquering death through His resurrection. As the first fruits of everybody else's resurrections. And so that those of us who are partakers in His resurrection and in His death will be partakers of life with Him. And so Jesus takes three disciples, and we read about it starting with verse 2. He takes three disciples up a mountain. And we read in other Gospels that it's a pretty long hike. They're pretty tired. The air is thin. They get up there, they get pretty sleepy, and they fall asleep. Okay? And this is what happens, because it's a magnificent thing, and I want you to see it. I want you to picture it in your mind. Beginning with chapter 9, verse 2, it says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord for us today, and my prayer is that it would change us and transform us as we see Jesus for who he is. What we've seen so far leading up is that Jesus is an unexpected Messiah. When asked, who do the people say that I am? The people had missed it. He's not just a prophet. He's not just an Old Testament personality, but he's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. He's not just a political hero who's coming to bring a kingdom to establish over the Romans, but he's a suffering savior. He's not just a giver of worldly security, but he's one who says, deny yourself and take up your cross. He's a pursuer and giver of heavenly purposes and victory over death. He's not just a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, but he is the very glory of God in flesh. And when we begin to see Jesus in that way, we understand the process that he's walking us through. So think about this. This is Christmas time, right? So the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh. Now remember, Jesus has always been since the beginning. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jesus didn't come into being as a baby. Okay? Jesus always has been as the second person in the Trinity, in the Godhead. He always has been. When he came as a baby, he simply put on a cloak of flesh. Okay? 
He limited Himself to flesh. He put on that cloak of flesh. And so in the Incarnation, He draws us into knowing God. That's what He's doing. We now can see God in a way we could never see Him before. So He comes and He dwells among us. He calls His people to discipleship because He's drawing us to the cross. He's drawing us to identify with Him. He then shows His disciples, He shows these three His transfiguration so that they will see His glory and find faith and encouragement for the journey that's ahead. Imagine, He says, take up your cross, and then He says, let me show you my glory. That's a pretty good deal, right? I mean, if you're going to have to go to shame to have glory in your back pocket, that's a pretty good way to go, right? To know that this is the King of Kings and He's going to submit Himself to death You look at these guys, they don't fare much better, right? And they get to carry with them the glory of Jesus, seeing God face to face. This is the good news of Jesus, that He not only calls us to the cross, but He calls us to Himself. And He gives us Himself. And so when He goes to the crucifixion, we're drawn into glory with our Redeemer. When He comes out of the grave in the resurrection, He draws us into a victorious life. When He when He sends the Spirit to the church, He draws us into powerful and transformative mission to be people who actually follow after Him as He goes to the ends of the earth. And when He returns, all of that hope and faith and glory will find their reward in Jesus. So here we have Jesus We have Jesus who's going to display Himself in stages, show His glory in stages. And here, He's just going to explode on the scene. I mean, look at it. I want you to just picture this in your mind. Just paint the picture in your mind for just a little while. It's nighttime because you've walked up a mountain, a high mountain as it says, and you get to the top, the air's thin, you're probably hungry, maybe you eat a little snack, you have a little jerky, right? And you sit down on a rock, and you're tired now on the lack of oxygen gets you sleepy and you you fall asleep. We already know these three are sleepers, right? I mean, you've heard the story in the garden, right? Stay awake, stay alert, pray. And what do they do? I think we'll take a nap. So if if Jesus has told them to stay awake one time and they sleep, I'm guessing at this point, right, they're probably sleepy. Okay? So they, they go to sleep. And we actually read that they wake up in the middle of the night and Jesus is there in all of His glory. He's shining so brightly with clothes so white that no one on earth could have bleached them. There is no way that Jesus is this white, right? There's no way His clothes could get this white. They've never seen anything like it. It's as if John, and this is what I find fascinating, John here sees this and is still in Revelation scared out of his mind when he sees this Jesus again. This is how glorious Jesus is. Remember, because he falls on his face when he hears the voice. And he cannot even stand in his presence when he hears the voice. So here we have Jesus ripping back the, the veil of flesh to show his glory. And he's standing there talking. Let's just make it weirder, right? Let's just get a little weirder. Let's bring out Moses and Elijah and bring them onto the scene. Guys who have been dead for 900 1,300 years, right? Let's just bring them onto the scene and let's have Jesus, Elijah, and Moses having a conversation on a mountaintop. Let's just see where this goes. 
Because this is wild. This is a wild scene. You're one of these three guys. You are now privy to something that no one else could ever imagine happening. And we already know at the end of the story, as we read, they go down a little more confused probably than they went up, right? And I can imagine it would be the same for us. But I want us to see here in this, because it is a a glorious thing for us to to see Jesus in this way so that we can be people who will deny self and take persevering because if jesus shows this much glory here imagine how much glory is coming okay if jesus shows this much glory and a little snippet on a mountaintop imagine how much glory is coming later the first thing i want you to say see is that jesus is god he's not simply a suffering servant he's not simply a good teacher he's not simply a miracle worker he is the very image of God. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 that we read earlier is long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is who is on the mountaintop. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing to see the veil stripped away. Now, we're told that no one could see God, right? No one could put their eyes on God and live. This is, because of the grace of Jesus, something that these three are getting to do. He is God. And this moment as the Father is going to come down and speak, is going to vindicate Him as such. Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus is the glorious fulfillment of the promises of God. Moses being the key figure in the law. Elijah, the key figure of the prophets. As they talk about... I mean, it, you can almost imagine, it's like, okay, remember, remember how you inspired me as a prophet to say that you were going to suffer? 
and that you were going to bear the iniquities and you're going to be so beaten that people wouldn't recognize you. Okay, Jesus, that's coming. I want to remind you of that. And Jesus, as we learn in the Gospels, what does he do? He did this to fulfill what was written in the law and the prophets. I said over and over and over again in the Gospels. He did this to fulfill what is in the law and the prophets. And so you have the law and the prophet standing there talking to Jesus about, okay, I want to remind you what you revealed to us and what you have spoken. This is the conversation that's going on. He is the glorious fulfillment of the promises of God. This <laughs> it is one thing for us to say that Jesus is the Son of God. It is one thing for us to say that Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. It's a very, very different thing to experience at first hand. You would think in this moment that Peter, who had questions about what kind of Messiah was supposed to come, would be drawn to remember what he had read in the Law and the Prophets at this point, right? You would think in this moment, there's Moses. Moses promised a great prophet who would come. This is who this is. (laughs) There's Elijah. My word, I remember what the prophets told us about the suffering servant, the Messiah, the root of the line of Jesse, the one who would come. And so here you have all of the fulfillment all on display right in front of them. F.F. Bruce says that Jesus is showing the disciples that the entirety of the Old Testament was bearing witness to him and that he is far greater than either Moses or Elijah. I also find it fascinating that these two are the ones that showed up as the glory of God is revealed as Jesus in all of his splendor is revealed because Jesus had already had conversations with these two guys. The pre-baby Jesus, the one who is the Word, right? The one who has been since the beginning, right? The one who spoke creation into being was the one that on the mountain with Moses, Moses said, what? Show me your glory. And he hid him, hid him away and he showed him the backside of his glories and went by. Now Moses, having been in the presence of God, is now standing face to face with Jesus having a conversation. And Elijah on the mountaintop and there was the storm and there was the wind and, the, and then the still small voice and the glory of the Lord passed by and had an encounter with the glory of God in this way. And now Jesus is standing there in all of his glory having a conversation with Elijah. See, Jesus had done this before for his followers. He had encouraged his followers for the road that was ahead. He had, he had taken Moses and encouraged him by showing him his glory. He had encouraged Elijah by showing him his glory. And now he's encouraging his disciples and us by showing his glory. That he is the fulfillment of all of the promises. Third, Jesus' mission was not on the mountaintop. His mission was not there. Now, I, here, here's what I love. Peter, in that moment, if there was ever a time to be quiet, this is it, right? If there was ever a moment where you just stand there and let your mouth like drop and you just sit there and you go. But not Peter. Peter, now thinking, 
oh, here's the end. This is it. The consummation of the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come on earth. There's, there's the Messiah. There's the king. There's God in flesh. We have him right here. We have Elijah and we have Moses. This is it. Let's set up tents. Right? This is the end of the world. And I get to witness it. Right? Let's set up tents. And he's right to realize that this is a picture of what's coming in the end. But he's wrong in thinking that he can get that and they can get that without the Messiah going through the suffering that's coming. So in this moment, he looks at what he sees right in front of him and he goes, I want that! And I want to stay, I want to stay here. And as soon as he says that, I don't know if this has ever happened to you when you say something and the moment's just gone. Have you ever done that? Like you're in the moment and you say something. Men, we're really famous for this with our wives, right? The moment's there and then you say something and the moment is gone. Right? Here's Peter. He speaks out and he's trying to be faithful. He's thinking, I'm thinking super spiritual. I'm thinking the things of God. And all of a sudden, the whole scene is over. Right? I mean, this is, this is pretty much the end of the scene because Jesus' mission is not on the mountaintop. Jesus had already told him this. Six days earlier, Jesus had said to Peter, the Son of Man must suffer many things, must die and rise again. And here's Peter six days later going, well, there hadn't been any suffering or death. I could deal with this. Let's just stay on the mountaintop. Hear, hear me on this. If we're going to follow Jesus, we can't stay on the mountaintop. Jesus will give us encouragement on the mountaintop, but he keeps going into the valley of the shadow of death. And if we're going to follow him, we have to go. We're not meant to stay in the light all the time. We're meant to be the light into the darkness. And Jesus has called us to that. Peter is assuming a lot, but if he wants to be with Jesus from this point on, he's going to have to come down from the mountain. Because Jesus isn't staying in a tent on top of that mountain. Jesus is going to come down from the mountain. And so God's going to make this abundantly clear. Here's what happens next. and I find this fascinating. It is good that we're here. Let's make three tents. Let's stay here. Let's camp here. Let's just stay here until the end of the world. This is going to be fantastic. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Just a little aside. If you don't know what to say... Just don't say anything. If you're speaking out of fear, don't speak. But here he is, he speaks. And all of a sudden, verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. We've seen this before, right? When the presence of God comes down in a cloud among his people, when when God in all of his glory comes down and he uses a cloud to shield people, people from seeing his glory so they won't die. Here's God in all of His glory, all of His Shekinah glory coming down. I don't know about you, but when I say something stupid and God shows up, it's not been a good day. It's not been a good week for Peter at this point, right? I mean, he gets one thing right, and then he's Satan, and then he says something stupid, and God shows up. And here in this moment, God shows up, and God doesn't just show up and strike Peter dead. God shows up and speaks. And this is what he says. It's very much what he said when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. This is my beloved son. That this is, this is my son. 
So what do we learn? Jesus is God's Son. Hebrews 1 tells us that. God Himself, the Father, has told us that. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses told the Israelites that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. And he says this really important thing because we don't need to just know that He is God's Son. The Father also says, listen to Him. Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 says, you must listen to Him. It's interesting that the Father says this to Peter because Jesus has told him some really important stuff already six days earlier, right? Listen to Him. It can't be right that you stay up on the mountaintop because you need to listen to Him. He spoke plainly to you and told you what's got to happen. Listen to Him. And when the cloud raises up and lifts up, Moses and Elijah are gone and they're left with Jesus. Disappointed? Not if they understood who Jesus is. Because He's the fulfillment of all that Moses spoke. He's the fulfillment of all that Elijah spoke. And all they need is Jesus. They're left with Jesus and they need to listen to Him. They need to now be people whose minds and hearts are wrapped around who Jesus is and what He says. Everyone else disappears and they are left with Jesus because He is enough. Now they have to follow Him. They need to be strengthened by the knowledge of what they've seen. They need to be emboldened by the glory of the King that they have witnessed. They need to be encouraged by the truth in flesh who is the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets. They must follow Jesus. For in order to see that glory revealed to the whole earth, there's going to have to be crucifixion and resurrection, ascension and return. And they're going to have to follow after Him. So they come down the mountain. And this is what happens. They come down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one about what they had seen. Why? We want to tell somebody. We want to tell somebody. This is amazing. Why can't we tell anyone? Because it was just a shadow of what's to come. This wasn't the fulfillment yet. This was a shadow of what's coming. They needed to wait for the resurrection. Because then, it wasn't just going to be a show, it was going to be victory. And God had not planned just a show of His glory. He had planned victory through His glory. And they needed to wait for that. The disciples obeyed Jesus, but they were confused. You see... It says that the prophets had promised and the scribes kept talking about the fact that that John the Baptist was coming first, right? How, not John the Baptist, Elijah was coming first. How can Elijah come first? Jesus, if this is the kingdom, how is Elijah coming first? We haven't seen Elijah come back to tell everybody and, and to usher in this kingdom. We need Elijah to come first. And and so they come to Jesus. And this is a fascinating moment. It's another one of those arm around Jesus, I think you misinterpreted the Old Testament moments, Right? They come and they ask, hey, what about Elijah coming first? Doesn't the Bible say Elijah's coming first? <laughs> and Jesus goes, yeah, and doesn't the Bible say that the Son of Man must suffer? How'd you miss that? That's Jesus' response. And then he says, but Elijah has come. And they killed him. Because John the Baptist was the Elijah who would make straight 
the way of the Lord. So, so what do we learn fifth and finally? Not only do we need to listen to him because he's got some, but his word is truth and always has been. This is the word of the Lord for us today, that Jesus is a baby in a manger. But all that baby in the manger is doing is displaying to us the love of Jesus for us that He would put on flesh and disguise His glory so that we could be with Him. Understand that. When the, when the baby is in the manger, it's so that we could be with Him and He could be with us. That He would put a veil over His glory so that we could be in His presence. But the good news for us is there will be a day and we get a glimpse of it here where the veil gets torn back. And we don't have a baby in a manger. We don't have a man on a cross. We don't have a man in a tomb. We have a king on a throne whose word is truth, whose glory is unmistakable, whose kingdom is forever. That's the king we trust. So when you see the baby in a manger... Praise God that He is Emmanuel, God with us. But then remember that there's a day when we'll see, in his, see Him in His glory and we will be His people and He will be our God and the kingdom of God will be dwelling with man. Oh, what good news that is. Oh, what good news that is. That's a Merry Christmas. That's a Merry Christmas with Jesus at the center. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would go be faithful to the call and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.